Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Let's look to his word here this morning. We'll continue our study today in Romans. We'll pick up today in Romans chapter 9 and verse 1. We'll actually make our way through the entirety of Romans chapter 9. The the middle part of the chapter will move uh, fairly quickly as we consider arguments that are made by the Apostle Paul. I want to give us a quick bit of review before we jump into Romans chapter 9 and just recognize that here over the last four weeks, we have had this awesome journey through Romans chapter 8. Four weeks, basically, if you include much of what Jimmy covered this last weekend. Uh, and so four weeks for, for chapter 8, yet one, one week for chapter 9, and sometimes that's the case. And in particular, Romans chapter 8, what an amazing chapter it is. I hope you recognize as we made our way through it how much truth is, is just jam-packed into that chapter. And truth that, that, that truly is encouraging to us, should be encouraging to us, should strengthen our faith. The chapter, chapter 8 that is, begins with the reminder that there is no condemnation now to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how it begins. It ends then with the truth that we are more than conquerors, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And, And in between those two amazing things is a promise that God is using everything in a believer's life, even the the hard things, for good. What an incredible chapter. Truly, in chapter 8, Paul brings us to what I would say is almost the summit of grace. That peak of perspective where we see all that God has done for us. Perspective that allows us to look at such things even as suffering, suffering in our own lives. And and as Paul writes in in Romans 8.18, to know that it is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What confidence-boosting, hope-building, life-giving perspective we gain through such an encouraging chapter. And then we come to chapter 9. And and in verses 1 and 2 of of chapter 9, we read, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. In two verses, it is as if we go from the peak of glory to the pit of despair. And we could ask ourselves, what gives, Paul? What's the deal with with this sudden turn? Way to ruin a great moment. And so we should ask, what is it? What what is it that causes Paul to, to go from this place to what seems like here? What causes this man who has just declared such glorious truth who has said that even when we are suffering, we can be confident that God is working it together for our good. The same man who in Acts chapter 20, as he stood before the leaders of the church in Ephesus, as he said his goodbyes on his way to Jerusalem, knowing and saying as much that chains and tribulations awaited him there, but yet with confidence declared, none of these things move me. What is it that has now seemingly moved this man to a place of sorrow and of grief? Verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. You see, the answer to this question this morning of what it is that could bring someone from such a place of perspective and, and, and a place of glory to a place of, of, 
of great difficulty, of great burden. The thing that has Paul so troubled is his heart for the lost, those who do not know Jesus. And the same should be true for us today. If you would just agree with me in prayer once more, I need it as we look to his word. Father, as we consider this humbling truth here this morning on display by the Apostle Paul, is inspired by your Holy Spirit, Lord, it's a heavy one. There are so many things, Lord, in our lives that Romans 8 helps us, Lord, to, to put into perspective so much, Lord, that we're dealing with each of us individually on a daily basis, Lord, trials, struggles. And Lord, you care about those things. And Lord, you meet us right where we are in those things, and you don't minimize those things, Lord. You don't demean those things. You tell us that, that you're at work, that you're caring for us, providing for us. But Lord, lest we be a people who get stuck and focused on those things in our lives and simply look to the promises of your word that tell us it's going to be okay, may we not, Lord, be succumbed uh, by, by those things, Lord, Lord, but rather to have the perspective that, Lord, there's still people perishing. Lord, there's still those who are lost. And while, yes, Lord, it's a great comfort that you're with us in our trials, may we not, Lord, allow them to cloud our perspective from those that need to hear the truth of your word. Lord, help us to see what you have for us here this morning. Help us to, if in some small way today, Lord, to, to, to get closer to the heart of Paul here and to see also, Lord, the amazing truth of your sovereignty as we look throughout this, this incredible chapter today, Lord. Help us to understand, Lord. Help us to see, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here, here Paul comes to this place where, where he confronts us with that which is truly important. And that's what I would title the message. If giving a title this morning, I would say the things that are truly important. He, he here continues by the Spirit to give us necessary perspective. Over these last several weeks, we've been considering the perspective we gain from, from studying His Word. And this perspective continues here to understand that, that in Christ, yes, we are no longer condemned. We are made new. That God is working on our behalf. That He's working all things together for good. That we are now in right relationship with Him. That nothing can separate us. That we are more than victorious in Him. But that Christian people are lost. People are perishing. And we, we have a responsibility. Not only of things that God calls us to, but to be used by Him for His glory. You see, Paul is broken over this so much so that he says, let me be accursed over, the, over these people. Paul says, because we don't often communicate this way, again, our, uh, some of our King James English is coming into play here, right? You don't often say accursed. What Paul's saying here is, I'll take their place. These people are lost. In effect, Paul says, I'll go to hell if they were to be saved. I will be separated from Jesus for their sake. Guys, that's a heart that I do not know. As I stand here before you this morning, I can say I have a burden for the lost, but it's not that level of burden. Paul follows in the pattern of, of, of those like Moses. Moses, who in Exodus chapter 32 and verses 31 and 32 of the Israelites says, it says, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. 
Are you kidding me, Moses? Have you, do you not know these people? Have you not experienced these people? How foolish, how sinful, how easily they just go back. Oh, we're just going to die out here. Send us back into slavery. Forgetting all that God has done. Over and over and over again. Yet Moses here, he looks at them, he comes to God and he says, they've done it again. And instead of saying what many of us would say, like some in Scripture are recorded as saying, Lord, you want me to call down fire upon them? Let's just take care of these people right now. Moses says, no, please, forgive them. Blot me out of your book. There's a greater pattern that this follows. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He who became a curse for us. These are examples of those in Scripture who were truly broken for the lost. And oh, I'm, I wish I had such resolve. I wish I could stand before you this morning as your pastor and say, yes, this is my heart too. But this is hard. This is a pretty significant statement and I'll, I'll say that I'm sort of of the let's all go to heaven together camp. Can we find, can we find a, an agreement on that one? Let's all go, right? And what Paul does here is, if you've ever used, this seems maybe even a foolish question at this point, if you've ever used a GPS, some of you are like, yeah, I remember we didn't have them, right? You use maps on your phone, for example. And while you're in navigation mode, it starts to give you your, your ETA and, and your distance to your, your destination, but it's got you, this, the screen is kind of right where you're at, but if, if you play with it, you can, you can expand it. You can see a bigger view. You can kind of, oh, I'm going to see what's ahead. And you can kind of scroll there, and you can get on up ahead and see where your end destination is and what route it's taking. And there's, there's many spiritual applications you can make from things like that, okay? But the one I would seek to make here this morning is that whether you do it by pressing the little button or if you just give it enough time, it's going to go, hey, stop spending time over here. It's going to take you right back. All of a sudden in that map, it's going to zoom you right back to where you're at. I feel like in many respects, this is what Paul does here. Related to this particular point, all these things he's shown us through the first eight chapters. And we can, we can again, as I've stated already this morning, get so caught up on those things. and They're wonderful things. They're truths. They're glorious truths. And we can even be so caught up in, Lord, you are working all these things together for good in my life, conforming me then to your image, and you're going to finish that work. Nothing's going to separate me. Maranatha, Jesus, I'm going to be with you. Praise God. Is there, is there anything wrong with that? No. Unless you find yourself just trying to camp out on the end of that journey and forgetting that it keeps trying to take you back to what's right here. Why are you still here today? Why are we still here today? Why has he not come back? Why has Jesus not returned for his church? Why has he not raptured his church out of here? Some days I go, Lord, why? Why? Because he's not done. Because he desires that none would perish. Because he said, here's what you... Between now and then, go therefore. This is Paul's heart and it should be ours as well. He's broken for his countrymen. Why? Verse 4, because they're Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. If anybody ever suggests that Jesus isn't God, go there. He's saying, look, Paul considers here the many blessings that the Israelites were recipients of. And he thinks, what a shame that they would miss the Messiah. 
And he loves them. These were many of the people that he was no doubt thinking of were his friends, his classmates, his coworkers, as it were. He loves them. He doesn't want them to perish. And we too, no doubt, can, can look at people, our own countrymen, our neighbors, family, coworkers, and think to ourselves, can't you see? Don't you see the blessings? Don't you see the proof? What a shame to throw it all away. Paul looks at this whole situation and he says, he says, God, look, these are your people. Look at everything they've experienced. But what then begins to happen from here, verse, verses one through five, really, really serve as an introduction. And so for us, really chapters nine, 10, and 11 are sort of this, I don't even know that it's fair to call them a parenthesis necessarily, but it's definitely a little bit of a shift from where we were in chapters one through eight. And now we hit this patch and it's necessary because Paul needs to explain some things and then as we come back into chapter 12 and beyond, Paul's going to bring it back to, okay, as a Christian, then what, what practically speaking are you to do? But here in this moment, he feels the need to focus in on there are still people perishing and, and, and in his heart towards that, but then because of that, he's going to give us some instruction based off of questions we might have. This has been Paul's pattern throughout the entire book of Romans. This is why Romans is such an incredible book because where he's going to go here based off of what he said in these first five verses is say, now I'm anticipating you might ask some of these questions. So let me give you an explanation to these questions so that you have a right understanding because even here as he starts to delve into, these are God's chosen people. God did make all these promises. Look through Scripture at everything that He's done for these people and everything that He said He would do. And, and the Messiah, it was the Messiah, was to come to Israel. So inevitably, He's expecting that people are going to start to go, well, yeah, what, what about that? God, what, what, what of your faithfulness? And so what we're going to see in these chapters, and we, there's both the historical application and there's an inevitably practical application for us today, but what we are going to deal with in these three chapters is certainly a lot of the nation of Israel. In chapter 9, we're going to deal with God's dealings with the nation of Israel in the past. In chapter 10, we're going to deal with God's dealing with the nation Israel in the present. In chapter 11, we're going to look at his dealings with Israel in the future. Because I will say to you here now, and this is part of the doctrine that we support here at Calvary Chapel, that we adhere to, is that God is not done with the nation of Israel. He is not done with them. He is still at work. He is still using them. There is still a plan and a purpose for that nation. So here he's saying, look, look, at, look at everything that's been done in this nation. And so then he comes to verse 6 and said, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect because that could be some, some natural conclusion that people make based off of the fact that, yeah, look at everything that God has done. What, what of the word then? What, what of the promises here? Has God's word failed? You see, the question could become with all of these promises that God has made that, that seem to not hold true for his chosen people, we could ask the question, well, what of my own salvation? What, 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 of, what, of, what I've looked to in Scripture as a promise, is God not going to be faithful? David Guzik poses the question, how can I be secure in God's love and salvation to me when it seems that Israel was once loved and saved, but now seems to be rejected and cursed? Will God also reject and curse me one day? Perhaps this is a question that's made its way into your own mind. So then here Paul begins to answer this question throughout the remainder of the chapter, all the way through chapter 12. But here in the following verses, what we have Paul do here is to go from a place of brokenness over those who are lost 
to then teaching and giving us insight on the doctrine of God's sovereignty and of election. So make no mistake about it, this chapter is not light in any way, shape, or form. Contested, debated throughout history, dealing with words, doctrines, truths about God that can make us uncomfortable. Paul does such a great job under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of of, of making sense, of of making it clear, of helping us to see. But please understand that as much as I'll attempt to do that in our study here today, let's consider the next three weeks in their entirety before you draw a conclusion. And so here, once again, he'll deal with with, uh, sovereignty and election in chapter 9, man's free will and responsibility in chapter 10, the state of Israel then in the future in chapter 11, all giving way then to a, to a passage of praise to God for His mercy and, and then our necessary response as we come into the beginning of chapter 12. And so as we continue now, we'll, we'll look here at three of Paul's answers to the question that he has posed. The first comes up here in the remainder of verse 6 and following. Paul writes, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, Paul explains, verse 8, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Paul first here begins as he considers whether or not people would say, well, Paul, based off of your brokenness over Israel and the fact that it seems that some of God's promises have not been fulfilled, Paul says, hold the phone. I'm broken over those who are lost. I'm broken over the nation Israel. But don't you dare think that it's somehow that God hasn't been faithful. Let me tell you why, he says. Let's look first at the father of of the faith. Let's look at Abraham and Sarah. And so Paul here appealing then to the account of Abraham and Sarah and the promise of a child for Sarah that when not yet fulfilled, Abraham, we know the story, we've dealt with it recently in our study of Genesis, he looked at Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, for a child. And from her was born Ishmael. And, and, and what we need to understand here and what Paul wants to, us to see is that Ishmael did not become the heir. It was Isaac. Just because he had a child does not mean that it was what God promised. That one was Isaac. And so Paul says here, it's not by birthright that one is saved. That's important for the nation of Israel to understand. Many still do not understand that. They still view themselves as, I'm a Jew, God's chosen people, God's chosen person, I am different than you, and so His blessing rests upon me because of that. There's application here for us as well though, because just because you may have been born into a Christian family means nothing. Praise God for the blessing of being in a Christian home. You still have personal responsibility. It means nothing. You grew up going to church every Sunday, every Wednesday, every whenever. That doesn't mean anything unless you surrender your life to Christ. He says it's not by birthright that one is saved. Paul says, look, not everyone who is an Israelite is truly an Israelite. Now for us, with this first example, it can probably be a bit easier to understand how a child born of the Egyptian maidservant is not in the line of God's chosen people, Israel. This one maybe is a little bit clearer. So Paul looks to another example, verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, Not of works, but of him who calls. 
It was said to her, verse 12, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Here we have two sons. Who would be born of the Israelite line? From Abraham to Isaac. Yet before they are even born, God chooses. And he chooses the second born, not the first. The order is usurped. Now some people may say, well that's because God knew their works. That's because God knew, uh, he, he knew Esau's heart and he, he knew Jacob's heart. But even here in Scripture it says that it was not rooted in their works. Which tells us then, practical application here, that salvation is not based off of your works. When we recognize, if you being a Christian say, okay, well clearly then, me having surrendered my life to Christ, I am chosen. I am part of the elect. And that's a conclusion that you can make. But if you take it a step further and go, good choice, God. Good choice in choosing me. I too feel like I've made a lot of good decisions. I've lived a life that's really good and pleasing. I can see why you put this blessing upon me. You would be foolish. <laughs> you, you would be conceited. You would be uh, a bit narcissistic and not really recognizing what Scripture says. Here it tells us salvation is not based on works. It's not about how good you are, especially because if you consider this scenario here as we study Genesis as of late, we know that Jacob, he had some issues too. He was a bit of a deceiver, he had a pattern of doing this. The fact of the matter is, you could look at both of their lives and come to the question which many have of, God, why'd you choose either of them? So as Paul begins to bring God's sovereignty now and election into view, we should begin to understand, and this is where he wants us to go, that it's less about why God chooses and functions the way that he does, but why he would at all. When we consider the likes of Jacob and Esau, John Stott is one who articulated this same question, saying the wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. If we receive what we deserve, which is mercy, in neither case is God unjust. If therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. This antinomy Stott says, contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve. But it is consistent with Scripture, history, and experience. You see, these are the things that we begin as we begin to ponder them. And some of you are in a place where you're like, I don't need to ponder it. I'm good. I'm saved. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to do everything I can to share the gospel. That's a good place to be. Some of you are a bit more prone to trying to understand every element of, of doctrines that we adhere to. And you, you run into things like sovereignty and election and you go, oh man, this is hard. This makes my head hurt. But we must understand so often we look at these things the wrong way. We begin to go, oh God, well, you did this for me. Why not for them? From the standpoint of, well, that's not fair. Versus just simply saying, God, it's not even fair truly that you saved me. I don't deserve it. To bring us to a place of humility, of awe before Him, where it says, God, I don't understand all of your ways. It causes us then to go to this next question that Paul asks, because he, he senses this is what's going to come. If in fact God is sort of sovereign over all things, well, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? In light of this choosing or this election, is God unrighteous? Is He unfair? Paul says, certainly not. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Two things here. If everyone is at a foundational level, deserving of judgment, then is God unrighteous for showing mercy to some? The answer would be no. Paul says it's his prerogative. Secondly, Paul uses the example of Pharaoh to prove this point. Now here's the important thing for us to understand, and this is why good exegesis and good study of the Bible and and considering the Word of God chapter by chapter from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, is that Paul here doesn't go into this area, no doubt because he's seeking to prove a particular point. But what he doesn't mention here is that in every case of Pharaoh's heart hardening, it was an act of his own will. There was never a time where God hardened the heart of Pharaoh when Pharaoh did not already harden his own heart where he did not already go in a particular direction, pointing us back to, once again, that all of humanity is sinful, foundationally, all of us heading towards destruction. And in the same way that today, God allows those who reject him to continue down their own destructive path. Is that unjust? No. Paul says, verse 18, Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Guys, what Paul is bringing into view here is that we are all then, as believers, recipients of his mercy, not getting what we deserve. And as has been stated from the beginning, we cannot earn it. It's not ours by birthright. It's simply God's mercy upon us. So, mind you then, you haven't heard me bring this up for a couple weeks, what of Romans 12, 1? This verse I so long for everyone to memorize. Why? Because it's building. One of the greatest letters in all of the Bible that we have been given, we've been blessed by, has been building all through chapter 8. Now Paul seeks to provide some understanding around God's sovereignty and election, specifically in the case of Israel, but application for all of us. And then he's going to bring it all back, all of these chapters together, finally coming to a place where he says, therefore, For, because of all these things, in view of what? God's mercy. This is his way of saying, guys, we don't deserve anything. We are lost. And you don't need to feel bad about yourself because of that. What you need to do is go, God, you've been so merciful. You have been so merciful, Lord. I don't deserve this. But you are a gracious God, a merciful God, a forgiving God, a loving God. God, I don't understand all of your ways. I don't know how it all works. But you're God, and I am not. And so in view of the mercy that you've demonstrated to me, I'm going to throw my life upon the altar, Lord. It's yours. No one else deserves it but you. Right? Do we get where this is going? So continuing on then, Paul deals with a third argument, beginning again with another question. Verse 19, you will say to me then, I love this, Paul is just so in tune, it's almost like he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? If God is God, and all this stuff is a part of his plan, then why am I in trouble? Why am I a sinner? Unless you find yourself in pride, by the way, saying, yeah, good question. Paul responds, verse 20, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, 
Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? You see, we all come from the same lump. (laughs) The form of clay is dishonor, foundationally. We are all that lump. So what of the potter who makes one vessel for this purpose and another for a different purpose? What Paul wants us to understand here is that it's up to him what he does and how he works. If anybody's ever seen a potter work and form pottery from a simple lump of clay, it's truly a a pretty beautiful process. I'm not a potter myself. It wouldn't look very good. It's not in my wheelhouse. (laughs) To see a potter form something and then to think about our Father, think about Jesus, taking a lump of clay, putting it on the wheel and beginning to form it, invest in it, pour himself out into it, nail-pierced hands, giving every intricate detail, stating, you are my workmanship, created for good works that you may walk in them. You see, so often we look at this and we say, well, well, what about this dishonor? You mean he makes vessels for dishonor? You mean, what's he doing with that? And listen, this John Calvin was a smart guy, did a lot of things, but he got one thing really wrong. Jesus never takes that lump of clay and forms it into something just to throw it away. That's not the intended purpose. Every, every lump of clay that he takes, he desires to make beautiful. That's where Romans 10 will come in and remind us that we have a responsibility to let him. Are we willing to let him form us and shape us? Are we willing to let him take those difficult things in our lives, those hard things in our life, and and use it together for good and conform us to his image? Are we willing to say, Lord, here's my life. I won't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but I'll let you transform me and renew me and shape me. We considered it a couple weeks ago, a different passage, but once again, Job, a lot of lessons we can learn from Job. In Job 42 and verses 1 through 6, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. You remember that moment when God said to Job, Gird yourself like a man, because I'm going to question you. Where were you? And, and, and verse upon verse upon verse upon verse, God questions Job, and finally Job comes back to the place where he goes, Woe is me. I was wrong. God, you are good. So Paul goes on to ask then in verse 22 and 23, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Remember, verses 22 and 23, I've got a book that says, never read a Bible verse. It's a catchy title, it makes you go, wait, what? And it's all with the intentions of saying, you read a couple verses, you maybe can draw a conclusion. The wrong one. You've got to look at them all in, 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 in context. You've got to look at them all together. It's not that these vessels were prepared for destruction in terms of this is only what you are for. But rather God saying, I'll suffer long with those who are continuing to reject me. Why? So that my mercy can be known. J.B. Phillips writes, May it not be that God, 
Though he must sooner or later expose his wrath against sin and show his controlling hand, has yet most patiently endured the presence in his world of things that cry out to be destroyed? Can we not see in this his purpose in demonstrating the boundless resources of his glory upon those whom he considers fit to receive his mercy and whom he long ago planned to raise to glorious life? When we stand back and we say like those who have gone before us, how long, God? He replies to all the world hears they all know and we then tend to look at this through the lens of what is fair but the fact is God is simply allowing those who have rejected him to continue their path toward destruction while putting on display his mercy shown to those who have received him in a manner intended to show his glory to cause others to turn to him is it not his prerogative as a potter to say I'll use this life to draw others to me verse 24 even us even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Even us! Of the Jacob and Esau comparison, this is written an account by Charles Spurgeon. A woman once said to Charles Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, it is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. You see, our response in all of this should not be, but God, why did you not do this for them? But rather, why did you even do this for me? Even us. As he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. Therefore, they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah verse 27 also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like, made like Gomorrah, saying there, look, unless the Lord had done a work, unless in fact he was faithful, we'd be wiped out entirely. And so to summarize here the chapter this morning, commentator John Salehammer writes this, not all Israelites are Israelites, not all Jews are God's chosen, and not all God's chosen are Jews. Moreover, we, Christian, have because of His mercy been grafted into this glorious promise. This amazing family of God to which we should not seek to question God's methods, but rather to rejoice in His goodness and mercy toward us. We'll, of course, continue to consider His sovereignty and His election over these next three weeks as we look at these incredible chapters. What I would encourage you with today, if any of you are slightly uncomfortable with the very topic of it, is to say, man, if I'm saved today, if I know Jesus, I'm elect, I'm chosen. If you're here today, you're watching online, and you're saying, I haven't gotten saved yet, and I'm frustrated that I might not be the elect or chosen, then I would say, get saved today, and you're elect and chosen. Listen to the Word. Allow the Holy Spirit that's with you, drawing you to repentance to convict you and to say, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. I surrender. Lord Jesus, forgive me. I need you in my life. I want to live for you. Here's my life on the altar. There you go. As I said before in the last chapter, parallel tracks. On down the way, it looks like maybe they come together. Oh, that's where it is. That's where it meets. And you get a little closer and you go, no, they're still running parallel, but you take one or the other way and that train derails. God's sovereignty, man's free will, they're both necessary for understanding of His Word. It was said, I think, of, of Spurgeon or maybe it was McShane, that he doesn't see the need to reconcile friends. These two things don't need reconciled. They're friends. They go together. What shall we say then, verse 30? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. 
But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. You go to Israel today or you deal with a a Jewish person in the States and you want to share Christ with them, you want to talk to them, you ask a Jewish person, how are you going to get into heaven? What are they going to tell you? Good works. I'm going to rely on being good enough. And that's not just because they think that that's the, the only thing that they can do, but what they know, and this is why it's such a burden for Jewish people today, is that they understand that there is only forgiveness of sins by what? The shedding of the blood. Can they shed blood today in that way? No, there's no temple. Why do they want a temple? So that sacrifices can resume. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so right now, all I can do is try to be good enough. Yet we declare there has been bloodshed. There is remission of sin. It's available in Jesus Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Kent Hughes writes, Paul here paints a mental picture of a roadway with a great stone representing Christ placed right in the middle and all humanity streaming toward it. Those who are pursuing righteousness by works refuse to see it and stumble over it headlong to destruction. But others come and rest on it in faith and thus find salvation. And I'll close with these encouragements. First, let's remember to keep in view the most important of all things. Our heart for the lost. We remain here for no other purpose than to be used by Him to reach others for His glory. And so it is for us to evaluate, is that our aim? Is that our focus? How much time do we spend on considering that? Secondly, rest in the sovereignty of God. He is in control. And and know that this is, yes, balanced with our responsibility, our need to respond We can trust, God, you are in control. You, Lord, are seated on the throne. Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts higher than my thoughts. Just as the heavens, Lord, are higher than the earth, so are your ways and your thoughts towards me. And finally, I would say, allow this to humble you. And know, once again, that Paul's argument is building. And just so that we can leave here today with a greater sense of, okay, it'll build to this place where he'll say, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word here today. Thank you that by your spirit, Lord, we trust that you've given us understanding. Lord, that you've spoken to us and Ways that, Lord, throughout the days ahead we can meditate upon and seek You more. As we, Lord, seek to study Your Word and allow it to transform us, Lord, continually. Father, help us with these truths here today. They can be difficult, Lord, for us to even try to comprehend. Lord, may we not be a people that seek to to reconcile these things such that we we can have our own understanding, but help us, Lord, to be a people who look to You and know, Lord, You're good. You're faithful. You saved me. And to be able to move forward in faith. Lord, I don't understand it all. But I know that you love me. I know that you care for me. I know that you're with me. I know that I am more than a conqueror. That nothing will separate me from you. Help us to rest in that truth. And to those who don't know you today, may today be that day of salvation. Make today 
the day where you surrender your life to him, where you too can say, yes, Lord, you've chosen me. We love you, Lord, and praise you. We give you thanks for your word, for your love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.